0: Welcome to The Balance, my name is Caitlin Tucker and this podcast is presented by StudySync. Today, I have two very special guests with me. They're two students who were in my beginning methods course and my advancing methods course at Pepperdine University in the Masters in the Arts of Teaching program. And as I was about to begin working with a new cohort, I thought it would be fun to have a conversation with some of my previous students to find out how their first year of teaching was going. I know from a facilitator and coaching perspective, working with teachers all over the country um, and some international groups that this year has been particularly challenging on many fronts. And I wanted to hear, how is it going for first-year teachers? What are they thinking of this year? What challenges have they faced? What successes have they experienced? So I am so excited to welcome Joe and Karina. So grateful that they took a little bit of time out of this first crazy year of teaching to check in with me and share what this year has been like for them. All right. So welcome, Joe and Karina. I am really excited about this episode of The Balance and having my own prior students coming back to kind of share your experiences first semester with me and with the folks listening. So I want to start kind of the way I start with most of my guests, which is giving you each an opportunity to kind of share like, why did you decide to pursue a career in education? So Karina, if you want to kick it off, I'd love to hear kind of your why behind this choice in terms of profession.
1: Yeah, of course. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Tucker, for having me. It's the biggest honor. Um, So growing up, honestly, being a teacher, the world of education wasn't really even on my radar. I, um, I was always passionate about English. And it was always my favorite subject in school, but I was a theater kid growing up, like starting at age seven. All throughout school, Like I was really engaged in theater. And the reason why I loved English so much was because it was like storytelling and discussing the human condition. And so that always interested me, but I was focused on theater and then decided to go pursue musical theater professionally in college, then moved to New York after college and was auditioning professionally in the city. And while I was doing that, In the grind of New York City, I needed a part-time job, um, to pay the bills. (laughs) So I was introduced to a synagogue on the Upper East Side of New York. And through them, I was able to start bar and bat mitzvah tutoring randomly. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up speaking Hebrew, so I knew already, like, that was already kind of in my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. And I started working with middle school students, um, like, five days a week after school, tutoring them. And I would do that while I was auditioning during the day, um. Um, And I fell in love with the age group and really became passionate about inspiring these kids um, and getting to know them on a deeper level and encouraging them, being their biggest cheerleaders. Mm -hmm. And I kind of had like this aha moment after like three years of really auditioning hard. And I was at like a callback for a really exciting project. And I was more excited about meeting up with my students afterwards Mm -hmm. than about being seen at this callback. And that for me was kind of like a a moment of, wow, what is it that I really want in life? And what kind of impact do I want to make in this world? And I was truly concerned about, oh, if I book this job, I'm going to be away from my students for months at a time and I won't see them. And um, for me, that's when I started really reevaluating what impact I wanted to make. And for me, I really found a big joy and felt like I had the biggest contribution to give was by being a teacher. and. I thought long and hard for a few months and then decided to move back to LA, enroll in Pepperdine, get my master's in teaching with an English teaching credential and really felt like theater and English kind of went hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And um, ever since then, I honestly haven't looked back and feel like I've used so much of my theater training within my profession and um, my why really just to empower kids, give them confidence and goes back to storytelling, I think, for me.
0: And do you see yourself one day teaching theater classes in addition to English classes? Like, is that something you'd love to do? So it's so interesting because I enrolled at Pepperdine with that intention,
1: honestly, of like teaching theater. I need the English credential, but like become solely a theater teacher. Mm -hmm. And I think it could one day happen. But right now I'm really excited about ELA and want to focus on just becoming the best ELA teacher I can be and Mm -hmm. then possibly incorporating theater. in
0: the future. nice. That's where I'm at. And how about you, Joe? What brought you into the teaching profession? Did you always know you wanted to be a teacher?
2: No. Uh, So (laughs) similar to Karina, teaching or education in general was never a blip on my radar. If you knew me in high school or in college, you would know that all I wanted to do was get my degree and get out. And being in the classroom was one of my least favorite things in the world. I loved school as a social outlet, but that was about all for me. Uh, I'm not much of a process-oriented thinker. So math, science, those were really difficult subjects. And mm-hmm. I always felt inadequate. And I was just waiting for passing period when I could go hang out by the lockers. That was kind of my <laughs> yeah. MO. Um, and so, yeah, my family makes fun of me all the time because my plans all through college were to get out. And now here I am back in the classroom doing this day in, day out. I went to college studying economics, mm-hmm. and after two semesters of math, found that this was not my, really not my <laughs> calling, and it didn't take long to figure that out. And then I transferred to Pepperdine uh, and was studying um, a little bit of art and then communications, and I graduated with a communications degree and left in spring of 2020. So I graduated in the middle or in the start of the pandemic. And at that time, had long conversations with my family about, really, what do I want to do next? Uh, business was kind of off the table at this point. And one of the great, I mean, communications degrees are kind of a double-edged sword because they offer you so many opportunities. But that can also lead to some kind of paralysis where you're not sure what to do. Right. And so uh, looking back and reflecting on kind of my journey through education, I taught Sunday school for pre-K at my local church. And that was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. Uh, so I kind of had that on the table, maybe thinking about doing something within education. And then what really got me through college was, uh, I had this French professor who is still at Pepperdine and I still check in with periodically. But I went through this phase, uh, where I was highly considering dropping out. I was moments away, uh, due to stress and like overall mental instability. I put plenty on Plenty of pressure on myself to be both a socialite and an academic. And then I, if you knew me in college, I was neither of those things. So -mm. I completely shut down and those were by and large the worst years of my life. And so this Mm -hmm. French professor really invested in me. Uh, I wasn't great at French. I was barely speaking the language, barely passing the classes and she invested in me, uh, emotionally and really kind of kept me afloat during those times Mm -hmm. and So when I was thinking about both my Sunday school experience and both my college experience, I was putting the pieces together and thinking maybe I could be that person, that French professor to those students who don't see themselves in school or don't see themselves as academics. So that's kind of what led me back towards education.
0: It's so interesting that you both had this experience where you were teaching kind of outside of a classroom, but still teaching and working with young learners. And that started planting the seeds of like, gosh, maybe I would want to return to education. Maybe this is a fit for me. I am feeling fulfilled by these interactions. And it's really inspiring. I know a lot of educators like you, Joe, who, they didn't love school, but they had that person, that person who took the time to really connect with them, to engage with them, and to support them when they weren't feeling like they were thriving in school, or they were just dealing sometimes with things beyond the classroom that were really hard, and they needed an adult who cared in their lives, and that was the, the catalyst for them to want to go into education. So it's really inspiring. So you guys were in my beginning methods and my advancing methods course at Pepperdine when you're working on your master's. And I'm curious when you were approaching this first year of teaching, because you guys are halfway through your first year right now, what were you most looking forward to kind of before the first day of school? Um, And what were you most nervous about? And I'll let you kick this one off, Joe.
2: Absolutely. So Krina and I were both in the same cohort, and the entirety of our master's program was online. So our student teaching was all behind Zoom. And because of that, I was anxious to experience the difference between navigating a Zoom classroom and an actual classroom. I was especially excited to put faces to names. (laughs) We had received a slide deck with all of our students' profile pictures, all their student photos. And I came to realize that that's really all I knew from my student teaching kiddos. Like mm-hmm. this was, you know, I, that was about it. So when they graduated, I had seniors in my student teaching uh, classroom. And when they left for college, I, I kind of look back on that now, and I almost questioned whether that actually happened or not because <laughs> you really lack that connection when it's over Zoom. So I was looking forward to those uh, moments in between classes or those moments in between activities, or if we finish up uh, five minutes early, like being able to actually communicate with students and sit next to each other and experience something more than begging them to unmute themselves. Mm-hmm. So that was huge for me. I loved it. I loved actually being in the classroom. And I remember being nervous for each period on Zoom, especially in those first couple of weeks when we are in our student teaching, I would, I would experience anxiety before every single lesson. And it was only until probably my third time teaching the, the same lesson where I started to loosen up a little bit. But what I felt in the classroom, as soon as the door closed, as soon as the bell rang, and it was just me and the kids, and it was in person, and you could kind of feed off the energy of the class, all those nerves faded away. Mm-hmm. So all that anticipation I had building up prior was really eradicated as soon as the bell rang. And that was really exciting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's such a unique experience you all had, having to do your student teaching entirely online. And then really your first day of teaching is stepping through that classroom door and having that face-to-face experience. And it's wonderful that that was so incredibly rewarding and served to kind of alleviate a lot of those fears and anxiety that everybody has in that first couple weeks of school. Absolutely. How about you, Karina? Karina? Yeah. I mean, going off of what Joe said, I remember
1: uh, days leading up to the first day, like texting with Joe, you know, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? It's our first day. (laughs) Um, And the nerves definitely like that first week were alleviated. I think similar experience, you know, not I had done student teaching. For like the end of the year, I I was fortunate enough to be hired at the um, school where I student taught. Mm -hmm. So I was already familiar with the campus, which was great. Um, And when the students came back last year, it was like hybrid. So there were only maximum of 10 students in my class at a time. And you're having to navigate that between, you know, Zoom, which is its own craziness. But um, this was my first time, like 30, 35 students in my class all at once. So I obviously was really anxious about how I'm going to navigate that classroom management, which of course is still a journey, but that first week—that's what I really focused on and leaned in on. And um, I have like this one period who I call my "woo" period because they're so supportive of one another and they always are cheering for one <laughs> another. And that was like my takeaway from that first week—that specifically that one period—who they would cl- applaud each other and clap. And I was like, okay, like it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, And that it, it just gave me such an excitement um, and high, just like being with the students and. Uh, it was just such a change from Zoom. So uh, it was it was really exciting getting to also have your own classroom, you know, like mm-hmm. it's such a treat, obviously, to ha- if you especially if you have a good mentor, to be able to have that mentorship in class when you're student teaching. But I think there was also something really freeing about having my own class for the first time. No one watching necessarily every move and like just being able to be free and develop into my own
0: educator. It was really exciting. Absolutely. Because when you're like working with another teacher who's established, you're taking your cues from that person. You don't want to step on their toes. And there is something so wonderful about creating your own environment and your own kind of norms and culture in a classroom. So I can totally relate to that. Now, Karina, I'm going to keep you, um, put you on the spot again. What has been the biggest challenge or challenges you've faced in this first semester as a new teacher? Well,
1: I mean, of course, right now with this new variant, of course, and like how unpredictable sometimes teaching in this pandemic can be, mm-hmm. and absences of students, and I think one being able to juggle, you know, making sure that students who are absent aren't falling behind, continuing to differentiate my lessons, and offering supports for everyone. I um, I teach three honors English classes for eighth grade, but yet I feel like not everyone in that honors class should necessarily be in that honors class so Mm -hmm. it's about creating the right supports and that's been a challenge for me of like making sure that everyone in class is feeling supported and with the right amount of challenges Mm -hmm. um so that's been something I think that I've really been focusing in on Um, in addition to grading uh, I remember us talking so much about it (laughs) in your class (laughs) and then I went into school like being like yes I know what Tucker said And yet I found myself grading like crazy. And it was like a rut that I got myself stuck in. I'm still, I think, struggling with that. And like, there are definitely times where I'll be like, no, this does not need to be graded. What actually needs to be graded? And I've gone back to, you know, I remember um, it was either posting your blog or it was old class notes about like, you know, what needs, what can actually be assessed and what's practiced. Um, So I think that's also just a big challenge. Even though I'm aware of it, Mm -hmm. I think I'd fall into the habit of like, oh, no. I need to assess them on everything. Um, so I think it's, it's, that, it's balancing that to make you know my life as an educator also easier, but give the students time to also assess themselves and for them to gain the skills to be able
0: to learn how to do that. So, yeah, I would say those are my challenges. Yeah. It's so interesting that you bring up the grading thing because we definitely talked about it. And what Mm -hmm. you're alluding to is that flow chart that's like, what are you grading and why are you grading it? And it is amazing how powerful our mental models or our experiences in education as students like how powerful they are when we get in and we're actually teaching because you really start just kind of automatically doing some of these things even though mm-hmm. you know you don't want to spend all of this time <laughs> grading everything kids touch but then You're still doing it. And like breaking some of those habits can be really, really challenging. But I love that you point out it's so important to position students to self assess. So if they're, you know, practicing, if they're applying, if they're reviewing, you know, all of those are like steps toward, you know, developing content knowledge, toward honing specific skills. And so why would we be assessing them in any formal way? Not to say we're not gathering formative assessment data use to differentiate but like why would we assess that when that's the practice they need to get to a point where we can actually say you know how much progress have you made toward mastering a specific skill or understanding a specific concept so i know a lot of people struggle with that Um, how about you joe what are some of the challenges you've been facing this semester
2: Well, I have a long list in front of me, and we'll see how much of this we get to. But I was thinking if you asked me two weeks down the road, the list would be completely different. It feels like every day there's a new set of challenges, Mm. which is what keeps Mm -hmm. the job exciting. But what's on my list right now, uh, I think the biggest challenge, at least in those first couple of weeks, was all the procedural knowledge that comes with your school. So Mm, my first period, the bell rang, and... I went to take attendance and I didn't know how to do it. And so I had to walk over to the phone, kind of sauntered over there and called and needed somebody to come up and teach me how to take attendance. So those little things like attendance, where's the bathroom in your uh, school? um, What is the bathroom policy for students? How to use the phone? All these things that really kind of suck up your mental energy uh, and detract from planning and detract from the actual classroom experience. So there was a lot that came in those first couple of weeks that I just kind of had to knock out before I felt like I was comfortable in that space and could actually focus on teaching and being myself. Um, And it's interesting because we we do teach that procedural knowledge is huge for students as well. And I felt that firsthand on those first couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, Uh, no, that's a definite, that makes so much sense.
2: Absolutely. So also that I feel this, pressure, and I'm sure Karina is in the same boat, Uh, one of the biggest challenges this year is there's this pressure to create the most exciting and interactive lesson each and every day. Through our student teaching experience, we had, Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe three or four days in between every lesson, and you're on for one period, and you you get through it, and you can really kind of like spend the week collaborating with others, your classmates in your cohort, Uh, you can talk to your mentor teacher, you have enough time to really meditate on these on these lessons. And so you're really holding yourself to a higher standard than you're really capable of day in and day out. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's been, that's been a challenge for me. And sometimes there's a lesson where it's not landing the way I want, or it's not the most exciting thing for kids. And that's hard for me to wrestle with and walk away from and then come in the next day Mm -hmm. uh, and continue to be upbeat and excited. Uh, But I don't know. I, I'm trying to tell myself that sometimes kids want something a little bit more laid back. If every single day it's exciting and thrilling, then, you know, that just becomes the new standard, the new norm. So I'm trying to s- take a step back from that um, and be a little bit more forgiving of myself in that regard.
0: And have you had a similar situation like that, Karina? Absolutely. <laughs> um, I,
1: and I feel like that's something Joe and I talked about, too, when we first started. Mm-hmm. Um And I think it's because Joe and I, I mean, we, we truly care too, um, but we, I think just like that, not necessarily, I don't know if pressure is the right word, but just that we so badly want these lessons to land and for the students to get them and, um, to, to, for them to have been engaged the entire time and, I like I've had instances this year where like I I walk away and I'm like, "Yeah, that really rocked. Like that went really well." Oh my god. And I love other that times moments. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's there's so the best so, feeling in the world. <laughs> it's
1: the best feeling ever. But then on the flip side, it's unfortunate when it doesn't land. Um I think that we need to be forgiving with ourselves and I, I know for me, like I have a, a digital lesson planner and I'll write I, so I write my lesson plans for the different block periods that I have, and then I'll highlight in a different color after the lessons, like after all five periods, um, I'll write what went well or what didn't. And for next year, so that I look back on the plans and I know like what I need to uh, adjust. Um, so I'll write those notes to myself and I go back to them often. Um, and I'm just, I'll tell myself like, honestly, that, that was great. Or no, the kids weren't engaged and, and then be able to reflect on why that might be so, but, um, it is. It's, we so badly, I think, want these lessons to just land and for the students to get the most out of them that it can be frustrating when when we feel like it didn't work.
0: Yeah. And what you're speaking to is like a reflective practice in that process mm-hmm. of going back through your lessons. Do you do anything like that, Joe, to try to capture like, okay, this really hit for kids and wow, this was a miss. I'm going to have to rethink this next time.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So similar to Karina, she shared that practice with me, I think week two, uh, in one of our breakdown Zoom sessions. But <laughs> uh, that's been something I've adopted. And I'm not quite so diligent about it. It's more on a week by week basis. But I found it helpful when I'm launching new units to kind of think back to why didn't this, you know, this new lesson work. Because usually my, my unit launches are what flop. So
0: thinking
2: back to like which phase of the unit am I in and how did this go has been very, uh, very helpful for me.
0: Now, I know you had other things beyond the process stuff, beyond the pressure to have these really engaging, exciting lessons. Mm -hmm. And and I think we have to be clear about the difference between like entertaining kids in a classroom and engaging Mm -hmm. kids in a classroom, right? Because it's a lot of pressure to put on ourselves to have every lesson be this Mm -hmm. like... (laughs) super exciting experience. Um, I think sometimes the best thing we can do is just make sure we're building in meaningful choices so kids are Mm -hmm. able to select pathways through a lesson that they're excited about or they feel are most relevant or will be most accessible to them. But um, I know you're not the only ones who struggle with that pressure or that feeling of like, we want kids to be so excited to come into our classrooms and (laughs) engage with the content. Mm -hmm. And sometimes... You know, sometimes lessons flop, and that's just a reality. All we can do is learn from those moments. So, what else is on your your list of challenges, Joe? (laughs) Uh,
2: Comparison to other teachers has been huge. Uh, So, I spoke to you about this prior to the show, Dr. Tucker. But the staff at my school is hard to believe; they're excellent, and they're they continue to to impress me every single day. And so, that comparison has been a slight challenge, Um, and I'm trying to come to this realization that you develop your own style, your own personality, your own class culture that's really, at the end of the day, incomparable to anything that anyone else is doing and that I'm just wasting energy comparing myself. True. Um, But on the (laughs) flip side of that, it's been great. It has been a learning experience. I'm getting so much mentorship Mm -hmm. from different teachers. Uh, I've learned more from the math department than I ever thought I would have. Really? Yeah. And they're so, at least at my school, they are so great about their procedures, Mm -hmm. how students come Mm -hmm. in in the morning, getting to work, getting their materials out before the bell rings, what's on their desk, knowing how to organize their binders and all these little things that have opened my eyes to how a classroom is run and all those things that I never thought about when I was in school or never thought about when I was in grad school even. There's um, a lot of theory and other things going on. So Mm -hmm. classroom management and procedures have been great in that department. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, well, I'm going to deviate from our questions that we kind of reviewed before the show Mm -hmm. and ask you both. If you could share one piece of advice with a new teacher or a teacher about to enter this profession, because you know I have a new crop of to-be teachers that I'm working with right now. And let's say we're just going to keep this advice focused on those kinds of procedural routine. Like for you, what's one piece of advice you'd give to somebody coming in this profession that you think would be really helpful to set them up for success in terms of those kind of procedures and routines? Karina, you want to start off? Yeah. Um, so something I actually took from you, Dr. Tucker, is the check-in of every
1: class. Um, I start every single one of my classes with either some sort of check-in question that is completely random. Most of the time, it's not content specific, um, but it just gets them engaged in talking or there's a free write. Um, Like if you were stranded on a deserted island, what are three things you would bring with you? Or, you know, what are your superhero abilities? You know, like all these questions and um, it'll be posted on Google Classroom and I'll also have a slide or they'll do free writes for 10 minutes and then we'll have a class discussion about it. Um, It's just a fun way to start class. And it, it, it just like, Let's everyone settle in for the first 10 minutes um, and builds classroom community and culture and just helps with your relationships with students, which pays off in the long run. So I would say that would be my biggest piece of advice. Find a some sort of check in that works for you um, that you can use every single class to get. Class going. Yay.
0: I'm so glad you're using that. <laughs> and we did only have six in the cohort when I was working with you and Joe. And now I have 20 or 21. And I'm still starting in-person classes and our online classes with the check-in because I also just think Yay. there is so much value in You know, when we're online, the first time they unmute and speak, like, let's have it be sharing something about our lives, our experience, how we're feeling for the day, not jumping right into content. I feel like it does definitely help make people feel more comfortable sharing as class goes on. Mm -hmm. And for anybody listening, looking for conversation starters, I will make sure that in the show notes, I have a link to a slide deck that is just growing of these kinds of conversation starters. If you want to make a copy of them and use them with your own students. Students. So thank Yay. you, Karina. How about you, Joe? What's your like one thing that's made a big difference or that you would definitely suggest a new teacher try?
2: Well, I can't sing enough praises about the check-ins. Those have been huge and just a blast for me. So I'm glad Karina touched on that one. Good. But for me, my biggest takeaway from at least the first semester is that repeating expectations and norms mm. is the most effective way to handle classroom management. Uh, I felt like I was just kind of beating a dead horse here and like bringing it up every two weeks. But over time, students really started to settle into that. So the way I'm approaching it this semester is I had every student set intentions for the year and they verbalized those. Uh, they talked to the class about them and then they wrote them and put them on the wall.
0: Aww, I and love that.
2: along with that, I did my own. And so I picked my two non negotiables for this year uh, and, or for this semester, which is talking while others are talking. And seating charts, you got to sit in your seat. I'm mm-hmm. not going to fight with you about that. So those are the two <laughs> things that I'm big about. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're all going to do that together. We're all going to put them on the wall. We're all going to sign it. Uh, so kind of picking your two non-negotiables mm. has been huge for me because there's always a list of 15 things and we all make our classroom procedures long because we want our class to run smoothly, but I can't keep up with all that right, right now. Right. And so I'm going to pick the two things that I think are most effective and most crucial Um, that I'm really just not going to budge on and then I'm going to focus on those. So I would find what's really important to your class running smoothly and make sure that you follow those to a T
0: yeah consistency is huge and I think your point about making it manageable so you know if you're a first year teacher and you've got all of these you know plates you're spinning from right. curriculum to management mm-hmm. to building culture and community it's like maybe you don't have the bandwidth for half a dozen to a dozen you know expectations Absolutely. or things you want to hit real hard maybe it's just that too so that you feel confident and you don't feel overwhelmed so I think that's great advice and In your placement, you know, in the schools where you guys are teaching right now, what kind of support do you have available when you hit a bump? Like, you know, whether it's, I don't know how to take attendance. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. And I'm in a room (laughs) full of 32 kids. Or whether it's, uh, I don't know where to find this on campus, or I'm totally Mm -hmm. overwhelmed by my workload, or I'm falling behind on this, you know, department pacing guide I was handed. Like what support Mm -hmm. structures are in place for you guys?
1: Um, so like
0: I mentioned previously, uh,
1: I'm in induction right now. So I have a mentor. She's been at, uh, my school for 30 years. So she's really, yeah, she's been around a long time and very much knows the procedures. And so whenever I have any doubts on anything, I can always, um, reach out to her as well as there's, uh, there's assistant principal. I specifically work with closely with one assistant principal at my school who um, every month there's a check-in with the new teachers. So that's another great resource. And also the other ELA teachers in my department, um, I regularly meet with, especially one of them, like once a week to pace out lessons in our units. And I think leaning, if you have the ability to reach out to others in your department, leaning on them as well for support, mm-hmm. has, for me, it's been so helpful. And I wasn't doing it at, in the beginning, mm-hmm. maybe because it was like a little bit of shame on my end. I don't know what it was that I was feeling like, oh, I, I feel bad, like reaching out or asking for help. But mm-hmm. as soon as I got over that and I really did lean in and ask for that support, it made such a difference.
2: So s- similar to Karina, my, my takeaway from first semester is that you have to advocate for what you need. Mm-hmm. I was in way over my head at the start of this year. I was teaching three preps and an advisory, which was preparing students for the LPAC. So I wasn't following the traditional advisory curriculum, and it really turned into four preps. And I got to the point where I was neglecting sleep, I was neglecting friends, my mental health was declining pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And I had to reach out to my admin team and tell them, you know, I need some things taken off my plate, or I'm going to have to find a new school. And they were so responsive towards that, so i I couldn't speak more highly of them, but they I meet with an instructional coach once a week to go over whatever I need, and if I'm you know kind of floundering or I'm just in over my head with workload that week, you know we'll we'll push it off to the following. I meet with uh, other teachers pretty consistently, just even if it's about, hey, I'm struggling with this handout, how do I organize this? And we just sit down mm-hmm. for fifteen minutes. So I've really gotten comfortable voicing my needs mm-hmm. and even if it's just mm-hmm. it, it's putting my ego aside and originally I felt like maybe I wasn't living up to the contract I signed because I need help with things right now and so putting that ego aside has been a big difference for me in just being able to manage how well I can do this job or manage my own mental health and the things I need to do.
0: Yeah I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves as educators to just be able to do this work. But this job is so multifaceted and complex and demanding Mm -hmm. that the sooner teachers learn to just ask for help or seek advice. I mean, teachers are some of the most generous human beings I think you'll ever meet. And whenever Mm -hmm. a new teacher asked me for anything, I was like, here's all of this, like use what (laughs) you can. Or if you need something, let's sit down at lunch and work. Like, together. I don't think most people would see that as anything other than you're being a really responsible educator asking for the support and the, the guidance that you need. So I'm so glad to hear you both have gotten to that place where you feel comfortable doing that.
2: Yeah, and I've absolutely kind of come to terms with the fact that other people are getting joy out of this. Mm -hmm. It's kind of Mm -hmm. this mutual benefit. So yeah, glad you brought that up. Agreed.
0: Yeah. Well, we got into this profession, of course, to teach students. But like, as teachers, we just like to teach. We like to help. We like to guide. And that that goes for our colleagues as well, for sure. So, have there been any big surprises this year? Like. Things that have maybe knocked you off balance, and that could be things that were good you weren't expecting, or things that have been hard that you weren't expecting. Um, Karina, you want to start this one off? I I went into teaching originally
1: thinking maybe I would be solely a theater teacher, and um, and you know see where ELA kind of fits in. And it's interesting how that for me has changed. How I'm really focused on teaching ELA, and I. Uh, I had the opportunity to take over actually the theater department at my school this past semester. Oh, wow. And well, yeah. So, but that's, so I had like this dilemma within myself. Like, do I want to take that on in addition to my five, um, mm -hmm. teach, you know, it wouldn't have been just like do the department and that's it. So I, I kind of like went back and forth of like, what is it that I want? What kind of work life balance do I want? Mm -hmm. And, um, a lot of people asking if I would be ready to take on that responsibility and do I want to do it or not? Um, so I think that's something that kind of got me a little bit off balance of like, what is it that I envision for myself this year as a first year teacher? Um, I ended up turning it down for this year, at least. Mm -hmm. Um, because I remember us having a conversation in your class about like, it's okay to say no (laughs) to, to outside, you know, assignments. And that was really tough for me because I literally came in being like, Oh, it's only theater, you know? Um, but it, it, it surprised me how much I really love teaching ELA. And, um, I guess this kind of goes into more also like the, you know, work-life balance principle of like, I want to become the best educator I can be in, Provide the best I can for my students, and for me, I knew it was saying no to outside assignments for the time being and so finding a way to have theater in my life I, I teach a, a a club on Fridays, which is like an audition prep class, and mm-hmm. that's been really, really fun and so I think finding that balance for myself of like, okay, how am I going to merge the two and be happy and okay with that that was kind of something that brought me off balance, but I'm getting back on the balance for that
0: and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like yes. in our class, you said, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm really going to struggle to say mm-hmm. no my first year. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yes. I, I know that I shared with you guys literally before my first teaching assignment, I was like on campus. It was early August before students came. And I'm not kidding. Every time I turned around, somebody was like, oh, do you, do you run? Are you a runner? Do you mm-hmm. want to like be the track coach? Oh, you played soccer in high school. <laughs> do you want to like be the soccer coach? And I was just like, no, no. No, thank you. No, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I'm i, I literally so Never overwhelmed ends. already.
1: I literally hear your voice in the back of my head, especially when I was going through that. I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? Um, and I, I'm a people pleaser. I'm it's very hard for me to say no to things. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was really something that I was like, OK, already, you know, like as a first year teacher it can be really overwhelming. Um. And I, and I said, no, Um, I'm proud of myself for it, Uh, but it is hard. Um, And we'll see like in the coming years, you know, I think after a few years of really getting comfortable and more confident in um, my teaching practice, then I can maybe
0: start adding more layers to what I want to do. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, because you'll you'll get more confident, yeah, in your ability, your curriculum will be more set, exactly. and then you can decide do I have the mental bandwidth, the time, the energy to take this on, or maybe something happens in your outside life that ends up taking more of your time and energy, and it's not a good mm-hmm. time then either. So it really is yeah. about being thoughtful about what you say yes or what you say no to. Yeah. How about you, Joe? any any surprises this year, things that have knocked you off balance?
2: Yeah. So this one's more of a positive, but I am a high school ELA teacher. So I teach ninth and 10th graders. And prior to this year, or even now still, like every time I mention that I teach ninth and 10th grade English, people's eyes widen and they're like, <laughs> wow, this takes a, a special type of person. You have a lot of patience or, you know, they must be testing you every day. And yeah, I mean, classroom management is an ongoing journey, but I am so shocked and surprised at how forgiving the students are. It doesn't matter how disruptive the class is or which class it is. Uh, If I try something and it fails, they are so forgiving and they Mm -hmm. will power through. They almost put in more effort if they know it's not going well because (laughs) they want you to do well. Uh, So that has been just the best kind of surprise. Mm -hmm. I give feedback forms uh, as you taught us uh, through modeling. I give feedback (laughs) forms after every unit um, or semester. And one of my students in my composition class uh, left a comment that said, Mr. Schwartz, I wish you believed in yourself the same way you believe in us.
0: Oh my God. And
2: that just brought me to tears, like on the spot. Mm -hmm. And so those students have really helped me leave the perfectionism behind uh, that I felt. Going into the first week, mm-hmm. I felt like I had to be perfect because if not, you're going to be ridiculed on the spot and they're never going to trust you again or engage with anything. But that is so far from the truth. And that was kind of letting my own uh, insecurities get to me a little bit. So that has been the best surprise wow. that I could hope for.
0: Well, and I think what we do as educators when we try something and it doesn't go well or it doesn't go how we imagined or it just totally flops is just inviting kids into that and saying, well, you know, that's not mm-hmm. how I thought that was going to go. I was thinking we would do this and this and this. And w- how can we make this better next time? I think it's like kind of... Um, Pulling back the curtain and saying, I'm human, I'm trying, I'm experimenting, I'm learning right alongside you. And it's not always going to go well. And I'm going to fail too, because anybody who's learning is going to eventually fail. And then you create this space where it's probably a lot less scary for your students to Mm -hmm. fail and for your students to take risks because they see you modeling that as an educator. And I think that's incredibly powerful.
2: Couldn't agree more. I tell my students that, we're all freshmen together this is my first year (laughs) this is their first year in the high school we're all learning things at the same time Mm
0: -hmm. definitely so as somebody working with a new crop of to be teachers what do you guys wish you had known before teaching um if you could give your professors kind of like one piece of advice for how to better prepare you for this profession what would you say It's so hard because in our situation,
1: like we were, we were all remote. And I feel like such a, for us, like our teachers could only tell us so much, but you really just need to be in the classroom to do it. Mm -hmm. That yes, we have the theory and we, you know, have procedures in place, but knowing and being realistic that sometimes lessons aren't going to go well. And like, it is okay. And continuing to just have this like partnership with your students where Mm -hmm. they're teaching you and you're teaching them as well. Like, that for me, I think takes a little bit of the pressure off. Mm -hmm. I'm someone who loves plans and like knowing exactly what I'm going to be doing, like weeks out from now, Mm -hmm. maybe talking a little bit about, you know, when things don't go exactly how you expected, how can you can readjust and um, pivot so that, you know, your plans will work for you.
0: So almost like how do we become more nimble in our approach to yeah. making adjustments as well? That's and I think exactly. you're the three of us are probably like all pretty big planners, I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> so <Yes. laughs> being more flexible sometimes, um, and, and deviating yeah. from our plans. I know that's been a challenge yeah. for me as well. Yeah. How about you, Joe?
2: Uh, so I, I never heard this in your class. So I'm hoping I mean, feel free to push back on this, but I was <laughs> I, to this day, I'm still beyond frustrated by the phrase that I heard all throughout grad school, the, the best classroom management is challenging instruction or appropriate or adequate mm-hmm. instruction. Oh, and interesting. then just kind of okay. pushing the classroom management strategies to the side. Mm-hmm. And this could be because we only had a year together and it was all remote. And obviously, you could fill up 10 years with all the things you want to teach a new teacher. So that was maybe just one of the things that fell uh, to the side, but I felt like I had no classroom management strategies in my first couple weeks. And that Mm -hmm. is by far the most intimidating and the most frustrating part of the job. Mm -hmm. Um, But sometimes you just have a kid who wants to throw erasers at the girl he's crushing (laughs) on. And regardless of what's in front of him, it doesn't matter how engaging the activity is or if it's about exactly what he loves to do. Um, I had a student who loves video games. And I had him research like his own video game if you were to create one, and he just kind of like blew it off and then started like yelling at this girl across the room. <laughs> and I was like, "There's no strategy, or I don't have a strategy for this." <laughs> and it's not maybe it is the instruction that needs to be tweaked, but sometimes uh, you just have those kids who who are gonna goof off or they're they're not in it today. They skip breakfast and now Or they mm-hmm. stayed up late playing video games and now they're a little bit off off their game. So. I felt like I walked away from grad school without any kind of strategies for classroom management. And I think that should maybe be a little bit more of a focus, especially mm-hmm. as we come out of a pandemic where kids are still relearning how to be a person in the world mm-hmm. and in a classroom. There's no hiding behind your computer screen. You're not sitting in bed. You can't, you know, mute yourself to to talk to somebody on the phone. Like, when is the appropriate time to do those things? So, um I think there is there's a lot of relearning that needs to happen this year that's been happening and I don't feel like I'm the best person to teach that which is frustrating. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Yeah, and I wonder what class that would fit into because I know we talked a little bit about strategies for building community in our class, but it was like Mm -hmm. a methods class. And Mm -hmm. I think there really needs to be what you're speaking to is important. And I actually just wrote a blog, just published it today before our conversation, where one of the things that is the biggest drain on the teacher's emotional engagement in the classroom can be behaviors and classroom management. Management when they're really negative, right? Because mm-hmm. we can spend as much time basically like redirecting kids and and managing, which I, I don't really like that phrasing. Like I don't want to manage yeah. other human beings, especially at our level, the secondary level when like, Joe, your kids aren't that far from being able to drive a car. Like, do they need another adult to manage them? Or should they be cultivating the skills to manage their own behavior? Like, that's where we want to get them. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, one of the things I was writing about was, first, I think it's a sequence of three things. And maybe I should be, like, talking about these things in class with my students. But I think it's about co-creating agreements. Because so often, Mm -hmm. kids come into classrooms and they're told, like, this is what I want you to do. This is what I don't want you to do. They have no ownership over Mm -hmm. the experience. And when they don't have any ownership over it, that incentive to kind of comply with those expectations is a lot lower. And so how do we engage the class community to say, these are behaviors and actions we think are going to yield positive, productive, supportive interactions. And these are behaviors that might erode class community, might make people feel unsafe taking Mm -hmm. a risk or sharing an opinion. And then once you've cultivated those as a class community, then for me, the next step is let's talk consequences. Let's, as Mm -hmm. a class, lay out a clear sequence of consequences. And the reason I think having a really clear sequence that everybody has discussed and kind of agreed upon is then when a kid has a misstep, it doesn't have to be a power struggle. It doesn't have to be like, wait, you're doing what to me? It's like, no, this is. This is what you did, and now here's the first consequence. And if you do and something else, yeah, yes. we all agreed on this. So for me, like when I would run a station rotation, if a kid was distracting me or another student, it was like first consequence, just a verbal warning. Like, Hey, this is distracting. Please stop. If you do it again in the same class period, you land in what I used to call a floater desk, which is one of the two desks that are kind of pushed up against the sidewall. And you work by yourself because you're clearly having a day, right? And, <laughs> and we all have those days. So yeah. the first time you land in that desk, it's grace period. Like, don't worry about it. Like, but I don't want this to like be a regular occurrence. And then the third consequence was like, if you land in that floater desk a second time in the same grading period, which is six weeks, then you have to have a conversation with me. You have to email or call a parent or guardian at home and explain, why are you in this desk again? And I'll tell you too, I had kids who were like about to hit that third consequence and we would like lock eyes and I could just see them. (laughs) I could see them think, I don't want to call my parent. I do not want to email my parent and the behavior would change. So I think it's it's that consequence. And then having them reflect. If they do have a misstep, are we asking them to reflect on why? What's going on for them? Because a lot of times it has nothing to do with us or our class.
1: Yeah, it's so true. And I really like that idea of them having to be the ones to reach out to their parent or guardian um, for the misstep. I don't know. That's really interesting instead of it coming necessarily from a teacher. Um, Yeah. Why should we
0: have to own that conversation, right? There's, it's their behavior. There's something going on for them. I think they should be, especially at the secondary level, they should be the ones owning that conversation. It's
2: been cool to see over the course of this year, my students' ability to participate in the creation of those expectations. We had mm-hmm. presentations uh, Thursday and Friday of last week, and prior to that, we created our own new set of classroom norms. And I stood to the mm-hmm. side. I did a turn mm-hmm. and talk, had them come up with uh, at least three per class that they that they wanted to follow for appropriate presentation like etiquette. And it was cool to, to see them kind of decipher what our class, what Mr. Schwartz's classroom like really needs to be successful. And for us to get through these presentations, because he's not the one up there anymore. So like, what do I need when mm-hmm. I'm up there? Mm-hmm. So it was cool to see them engage in that. And I think the, the further you get in the year, the, the more you can allow them to kind of run the show on that.
0: Yeah. Well, and even I love that you couched that before like presentations, like what's Mm going to make these presentations work well. And you could have similar conversations like, okay, we're going to have small group discussions. What are we going to do in these small group discussions to make sure people feel supported and welcomed into the conversation? So yeah, I, I like the idea of starting to kind of slowly engage them in that work. And then I'm curious when they were like, Watching each other's presentations, did you see a difference because they had gone through that process?
2: Yeah. It was uh it was probably the two most rewarding days of the year so far to really take a wow. step. I sat in the wow. back of the room, I sat next to uh one student each time and the two of us kind of did the grading or the, like ran through the mm-hmm. presentation notes. And uh mm-hmm. it was a blast to take a step back and really see them call on people for questions and have people like engage. And like ask, I had a couple students who just kept asking the same questions over and over again because they knew somebody was going to ask them and they, mm-hmm. they wanted to be the ones to engage the, the presenter. And so it was mm-hmm. cool for them to really kind of take ownership of their learning and really look out for each other because nobody <laughs> enjoys being up there. And they know this because I share it all the time. Nobody likes to be up there, ask a question and then nobody replies. So you're just right. standing there oh, yeah. in no man's land. And <laughs> they kind of thought critically about that. And they were like, yeah. I don't really want to be in that position myself. And so let me help out my mm-hmm. classmate. And so I had mm-hmm. quieter students who really like got the most support from the class because they knew they were the most nervous to be up there. And I got louder students who were a little bit just like more in their element, And it was cool to see them really run, uh, run their presentations. That's great to hear.
0: Okay. So I always end my podcast by inviting the guests to kind of share some tips, some strategies, something that they're doing to strive for or attempt to kind of maintain more of a healthy work-life balance. Now, this is doubly challenging for you guys because I remember my first year teaching and how absolutely exhausting it was and how many late nights and long weekends I had. But I'm curious, how are you striving for a healthy, we'll call it a uh, healthy-ish work-life balance (laughs) this year? And Joe, I'll let you kick this one off.
2: Uh, Healthy-ish hits it on the nose. But uh, (laughs) I would say don't lose sight of your own routines. I just as we preach to students that we have these routines for class to run smoothly, don't like, don't let your own routines fall by the wayside. Uh, we have routines to help our lives run smoothly. There's two things I need to do every day. And that's, I need to work out exercise in some kind of way. And I need to journal my thoughts. Mm -hmm. And if I don't do those things, I'm a little bit off kilter the next day. Mm -hmm. Um, and those first few weeks, as I'm sure Karina can attest to, knock you off your balance completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's okay. But it would have been really, if I didn't have those two things in place, it would have been really hard to come back to that uh, that routine. So I, we all have a list of more than two self-care things that we like to prioritize in our lives. I, similar to my routines and procedures for this year, there's going to be two things that I just simply will not budge on. And those our exercise and journaling. I'm gonna do those each and every day. Um, and there's no no room for error on that because that's that's important for my work-life balance. Yeah,
0: no, I get that. I, I'll never forget when I started the doctoral program, um, that one of the professors, Dr. Sublet, was like, do not neglect your physical health. Like if you are mm-hmm. somebody who works out don't put it on the side burner. Make sure you continue working out because this is going to be so demanding and you're going to need that physical routine or whatever routines work for you. So I think that's a really, really important piece of advice. How about you, Karina?
1: Yeah, going off of what Joe said too, I am also for me try to work out every day, if not every other day and, um, committing to that. I'm not as much of a morning person. So for me, it's after school that I'll get to do that. Um, and also just being strategic about what I can accomplish. I think during school, during prep periods, I have been intentional about kind of mapping out my weeks of, okay, what can I get done at school? Mm -hmm. And then trying for, um, unless it's an insane week, like trying at least to give myself like twice a week during the school day to not work at home and maybe stay an hour after school and then leave and just get to be home Mm -hmm. and not work. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, it doesn't always happen like that, but I (laughs) I try to like negotiate with myself being like, okay, if you can get this done at school, you don't need to then work at home and maybe choose Wednesday to be the day that you're going to work longer hours after school. But that kind of makes... I don't know that we feel more balanced in a way. So it's not like every day after school, you're having to work those extra hours. If you can try to be strategic about, you know,
0: doing stuff earlier in the week. I love your use of the word strategic. I think my gut instinct is also to like, for myself is always trying to be realistic about what I can mm-hmm. get done. Because I remember having my mm. massive to-do list and being like, okay, on my prep period, I'm going to do da 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 And then I would get yeah. an email or a teacher would stop by <laughs> yeah. or something would happen. And well, I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't get all these things done. And then I was like really hard on myself about right. why didn't you get that done? Um, and you need to use your time more thoughtfully. And so I think strategic and realistic are really important words to kind of associate with this, this workload that we're trying to juggle both at school and beyond. So great pieces of advice, you guys. And I just want to thank you with everything you're juggling this year, making time to to be with me on this episode and share your mm-hmm. experience from your first semester. Um, I know it will be interesting for established teachers to be listening to, but also those folks who are also new in this profession. So thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having us. Thank Wouldn't you. have missed it for the world. Thank
0: you, Absolutely. seriously, it is the biggest treat. a few things that stand out for me in this conversation. Definitely as a professor working with people who want to go into this profession, really focusing on how do we create clear expectations? What does classroom management really look like? How can we build strong classroom cultures with learning communities that are dynamic? And maybe that's something that we need to spend more time on when we're working with new teachers or people People who want to go into the teaching profession. I definitely know that that is a an aspect of this conversation that I will be acting on and incorporating into my own work as a professor. But I also really appreciate that Joe and Karina shared moments where they had to create stronger boundaries for themselves as new teachers. And I think that's really hard to do even for established teachers to say this is too many preps for me to feel like I can be the best teacher I want to be or no, I can't take on this extra responsibility this year because I'm new to the teaching profession or because I am teaching new courses and it's going to take a lot out of me. As teachers, I think that boundary setting is so incredibly important to finding a work life balance or at least striving for one. And definitely something that I think we can all benefit from remembering that we can't do it all, nor should we feel the responsibility to do it all, that we really have. Have to check in with ourselves regularly and figure out what can I do right now. Like, what do I have the time and the energy for? Um, because there are only so many hours in the day. So, creating those strong boundaries. Thank you to StudySync for producing and sponsoring this podcast. StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust multimedia ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners at different skill levels and language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. StudySync's most recently released product, Sync Blast, expands the company's scope to include engaging, supplemental digital inquiry solutions for social studies and science classrooms. Visit Studysync.com for more information or follow the link in the show notes.